Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Uh, Because of the way that this conversation with the Lord Jesus starts, I will back up and read from verse 20 uh, through 37. But our passage will focus, uh, our sermon will focus on verses 25 through 37 this morning. Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit, uh, particularly for the purposes of receiving your word with grace and power and fruitfulness. We know left to our own devices and the sin sickness of our heart. Uh, We would... Uh, be like knots on a log, we would allow that word to sit there until the devil take it away. We ask, Father, that you would plant it in our hearts and that you would plant it deeply, that it might not wither on the vine when hardship and persecution comes, that it might not be crowded out with the deceitfulness of riches and the love of this present world, but that it would grow and that it would flourish that it would choke out the remnant and thorns of of earthly desires, and that it would produce the fruit that you intend for us, repentance from sin, faith in Jesus Christ, and devotion to your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 20 through 37. Notwithstanding, says the Lord, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hath revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, And who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, 
and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I am come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell in among thieves? And he said, He that showed... He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Here we have, ostensibly, Jesus uh, speaking unto his larger disciples and, and the, the, the closer group to him. Speaking of the glory of seeing the, uh, the fulfillment of the promises of the Father in him, uh, the, the favor of God uh, demonstrated in sending forth of the 70 and their powers over the devils that we read in 20, uh, the blessing that Christ gives because he sees the fall of Satan's kingdom in this, And that, that seeing the Son or hearing the Son is that connection to the Father uh, in, in, in verse 22. And then that private uh, aside to them, blessing them, uh, because they are now at the fulfillment, that, that axis of time, that fulcrum that God is doing His will in the Gospel and a lawyer who perhaps heard this, or, or perhaps didn't, uh, but nevertheless seeking to challenge Jesus Christ, that's what the language of tempting him is. It's uh, not that, that he didn't uh, know the answers, but he's going to take on this teacher as a teacher himself and uh, ask him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as I said, perhaps he is thinking of what Jesus has just said to his disciples and thinking that this doesn't sound like a great deal. Uh, This revelation of God, this knowing God, which perhaps he would agree would be the the quintessential aspect of having life, that that joy of David, David's hope at the end of Psalm uh, 17 was that I know that when I shall awake, that is, after I am put down in the grave, but when I shall awake, I shall be righteous even as you are righteous. That promise that even John the Apostle picks up and he writes in 1 John chapter 3, 2, My little children, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. We don't look like the children of God in the world, but we know that because we are his children, when he shall appear, we shall be made like unto him. It's the gospel hope, that blessed vision, the beatific vision sometimes you hear described. But there wasn't a whole lot of hoops to jump through. There wasn't a whole lot of rigor in what Jesus was speaking of. Uh, These 70 had not gone unto the high and the mighty. These seven had gone into the regions of Galilee, perhaps into the regions of Samaria, perhaps even into the regions of the Decapolis and to the Gentile cities. This didn't look to the mind of this lawyer like the way of the holiness that his tradition had taught. 
And so he asked him, what might I do to inherit eternal life? And in an adversarial way, he's going to catch him out on what kind of answer Jesus gives, which is why Jesus very wisely says, well, what readest thou in the law? How readest thou? What does the law say? What does Scripture say? Because this is how Jesus uses the word here. And he answering said, and this is the summary of the law, by the way, that Jesus himself will use in the, uh, the, the last week before his crucifixion, when he's challenged by a certain scribe. He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, the first part comes from Deuteronomy 6, the second part from Leviticus 18. Uh, but this is that summary of the law, the first table and the second table, our duties to God and our duties to man, which are the same, to love. To love with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And it could go on, the listings, there's only three listings in the Hebrew. Uh, the Greek here lists four. Uh, we, could, we could summarize it and say, you're to, 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 to love the Lord your God with your whole self. Or we could bring it out and, and with all of the things that you do and all the things that you desire. and all, We just put, the point is, is that we are to give ourselves 100% unto God. That we are to find our good in his glory. As the catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To love God. To love God, not emotionally, Although we're to love God emotionally. But, but remember, the Greek has more than one name for love. And here it's agape, to seek God's good. And of course, we can't do anything good for God. So uh, it, the seeking God's good is to do the good that he requires of us or to seek the good of his people. And that's why the second commandment is like unto the first, to love our neighbor as ourselves. As... as as David says in Psalm 16 too, My good does not extend unto thee, O Lord, but to the saints in the land in whom is all my delight. I can't improve your situation, O Lord, who is infinite in satisfaction, infinite in power and glory. Nothing can be taken away from you and therefore nothing can be added unto you. But I can look upon your people. I can look upon my neighbor I could look at what you have told me to do and to do it as my own good. That's what agape means, by the way. It is seeking the good of another. That's why we are to love our enemies. And it doesn't mean that we are to like everybody, because if it did that way, you wouldn't have enemies. But we are required to seek the good of our enemy. And God is the example in that. God created... You know, he creates the, the sunshine and the rain and he waters the fields and he brings out the dryness and he doesn't do it just on his people and not on everybody else's. That would be a quick way for everybody to at least claim that they're his people. But he gives it indiscriminately. He gives it to the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. This is what the law requires. And this is the way the the. the the lawyer answers. And Jesus says, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. So the question is, do they agree? In verses 26-28, uh, have they come to an agreement? And instinctively, we know that they haven't, right? 
We know that there's something wrong. In fact, we know something's wrong because uh, Luke tells us that the very next question is motivated by the lawyer seeking to justify himself. He recognizes that he's been caught out in his own scheme and that there's something wrong with the way he answered. And so he is going to respond in a way of self-justification. The problem is, is that the tradition of men that make void the commandment of God, the rabbinical tradition, the tradition that is even to this day followed in the Talmud and is part of, uh, the, uh, of, of Israel after the flesh that rejects the Messiah's teaching, it tends to limit the scope of the second table of the law. It tends, when it hears... To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It tends to put a little asterisk on that neighbor and goes down to the end and then explains who is the neighbor and who isn't in such a way that it's not all that hard to follow. Neighbor naturally means the person that is near to you. It is the nearby person where the word comes from. It is the person that God has thrown in your way, either because they live next to you or live in your own house and then they become even your family, or because you are doing business with them, or because you go to the same town to get your groceries, or you know, even those days you went to town to do your marketing, and, uh, and you run into them. They're people that you come into contact with. Sometimes people want to say that your neighbor is everybody indiscriminately. And and in an abstract sense, that is true. But the fact is, it's really hard to love somebody that you don't even know exists. And and the law doesn't go to those sort of uh, idealistic extremes. It limits itself to the practicality. Notice, you love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to love yourself. By the way, this means that there is in even this form is another way of saying what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's, it's all wrapped up into there together as the great commandment. But if you can define your neighbor as the people that you like. The people that are like you, that are of your own nation, that think like you do, that are of your own class, then it becomes easier to say, well, I, there are some people I love and then there are some people I hate or I don't have to care about. Because hate is, is also a virtue in its proper context. Uh, apathy uh, tends not to be. We, we, we see this tendency even in the New Testament. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5, in the first chapter of the um, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. Note, he doesn't say, Thou have seen it written that thou shalt love your neighbor and hate thy enemy. You have heard that it has been said. He's talking about the tradition and the way that the love thy neighbor has been corrupted. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. 
For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which art in heaven is perfect. Even the most wicked man, traitor to the country that you can think of, even he likes those that like him. And there's no virtue in loving thy neighbor if you're going to define your neighbor as those that you like. Um, this, by the way, indicates and, and exposes what an evil that we call a good sometimes, and, and perhaps it is a good in a certain context, but it can swing into this evil very easily. Uh, people talking about being relational and, and having uh, these, these hospitality relationships. And what that sometimes devolves into is is liking the people you like and not liking the people that you don't. That if you are, are geared for what matters is your liking of a person, then you are going to, what you're going to do, be tempted to do, is to excuse all manner of wickedness in the person that you like while looking at the same wickedness in somebody you don't like and making it... An, making it far worse and condemn it to an extreme. We see this in our politics. If somebody agrees with so a politician of, let's, so we don't get too uh, partisan here, uh, let's say somebody from the, uh, the, the, the Purple Party, uh, they've been caught in a scandal. Well, all the Purple Pottery voters are going to excuse that scandal. But when the, the Orange Party uh, does the same thing, or maybe not even the same thing, well, then they will go after that person as, as, as the, the end of all democracy. You don't have to think too, too creatively to, to press through into modern. But we do that also in our personal lives. And we sometimes don't catch it. Because it's so natural to us. And the scribes and the Pharisees and that man-made self-justifying nature of the law had so interpreted the perfect holy law of God as that they could hear the right words but receive it in a different way. In a way that made them no different from the world around them. I mean, they weren't loving the same people that the publicans were loving. They weren't loving the same people that the Gentiles would love. But they were loving like the Gentiles and the publicans. And when we are, hip- when we are hypocrites, it's easy to cover up the hypocrisy in the first table of the law, our duties to God. We can say... Because people don't know our heart, as long as we uh, do the outward, because I attend church every Sunday, because I'm at the church every time the door is open, or because I, I put a little fish on the back of my car, or because I just identify as a Christian, then I am loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, body, and strength, or strength and mind. It's hard to catch somebody out on that. And that's why Scripture often uses the second table of the law to judge the first. John, 1 John chapter 3, 
16 to 17. Hereby we know the love of God that he gave his life for us in Christ. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But how does the love of God dwell in you when you see your neighbor or your brother in need and you have this world's goods and you shut up the bowels of compassion against him? It doesn't. And so that second table is where is where the the iron is tested. Is where the, the profession of our love to God is tested in our love for one another. And so and so the, the publican will not the publican, the lawyer willing to justify himself asks. He says, Well, who is my neighbor? Because he senses that he senses that this isn't enough. But he's asking the wrong question, you'll note. Note how the question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't say, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. No, he tells this story of the, the, the Good Samaritan, one that we know. And note how he ends it. He says, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, him that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Now, he's not asking which one is his neighbor. He's asking which one did the work of a neighbor. He changes the question. Who is my neighbor? Or how shall I be a neighbor? One leads us into speculation and leads us quite naturally and sometimes even unintentionally to start making up lists about what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. And that's where sin and self-interest is going to come in and lead us astray. The other question, the one that Jesus actually leads our our lawyer uh, to, to consider, is how shall I be a neighbor? How shall I love even as I am told, because the commandment is love thy neighbor as thyself. That means that the way I love another is also how I ought to be loving or, or how another ought to be loving me. And so I can uh, put those in and out. You know, by the, the lawyer's definition, the neighbors were those that passed by. Uh, the fellow, Jesus doesn't explicitly say so, but... Jesus himself, being Jewish, is talking to a Jewish man and is going to certainly talk about a Jewish man going up from Jerusalem to Jericho, largely Jewish cities in those days. And so you have this Jewish man that is beat up to the point of death and robbed and left naked on the side of the road. And a a priest and a Levite come by. The Levite even inspects the fellow. And leaves him be. Now, this is a parable. This is a story that Jesus says to illustrate. It doesn't have to actually ever occur. But even so, the lawyer can't say, well, no scribe or Pharisee, I mean, scribe or, or Levite would do that. Because that's not the whole point of a parable. The point of the parable is to put yourself in the middle of it. It's no need to ponder why they might do so. The question is, can you see yourself doing it? Can you see yourself as a priest or a Levite going on the road, passing by the man that is on the point of death, who might be, as far as you know, dead, and just hurrying along on your way? Could the lawyer think this way? Because you're invited to think this way. Could this be you? 
And I would ask you, hasn't this been you? Haven't there been times when we have looked upon our phones and seen a call from somebody we know is going to put us out of sorts and demand the things upon us and we just decide not to answer it? Or, you know, I'll excuse uh, most women, children from this, but, but say you're in a position where you could stop on the side of the road to help somebody you see need and you just hurry on by. I mean, we see news articles of awful stories in, in cities where on subways or in coffee shops, people get in distress and beat up or sometimes murdered. And one part of the news story is, is that everybody else in the establishment just kept their face down and did not intervene. But we could go to John and his epistle because John is doing the same thing. He says, yes, we tell ourselves that we will give our lives for the brethren. So in the big things, we can have these bloated imaginations, but the test is in the little things. You who have this world good and you see your brother in need and you close up the bowels of compassion against him. John is lowering the bar greatly. He's not even saying that you don't refuse to give of your stuff. You just don't show compassion at all. And you're not moved. By whatever excuse your brain will come up with. Have you ever just passed on by the other side? And we do. We do, often. We probably do a lot more than we can even conjure up in our mind. We probably almost certainly do a lot more than we are comfortable with doing. And in so, we have not fulfilled the law. And we cannot live by it. The supposed enemy shows the way. Now, when Jesus picks out the Samaritan here to be the, uh, the exemplar of a, someone who shows mercy, he's not saying that the Samaritans were a particular merciful people. They weren't. The hatred and bitterness that the Jews showed to the Samaritans was reflected in the hatred and bitterness the Samaritans were showing to the Jews. They did not like each other. The feeling was mutual. One was not the victim of the other's hatred and oppression. They both disliked each other. They were mutual enemies. They agreed with this. They agreed on nothing else, but they agreed on this, that the other was detestable to the other. But in this story, compassion wins out over national feeling. And he takes this man that presumably was a Jew and he binds him up. He takes time and, and, and puts the oil and the vinegar or wine into his wounds to clean and disinfect it. He puts him on his own beast so he walks to the next inn. And the inn that's mentioned is not a kind of a caravanserai, but is a, is a real hostel, a real inn. Uh, and that he not only does that, he expends his own money to ensure that this man will be made whole. It's a beautiful picture of mercy. And indeed, the, the lawyer can't deny it and says, yeah, even though he won't say the man's name, perhaps, he, he has to say the man that showed mercy. 
I mean, which one loves as the Father loves? In Luke chapter 6, in verses 27 through uh, uh, 38, But I say unto you, and this bears similarity with the Sermon on the Mount passage in Matthew, But I say unto you, which hear, Love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And here we see, by the way, what it means when Scripture says, love the agape. It doesn't mean all the time that we have to like. An enemy is, by definition, not somebody that you like. The Samaritan, perhaps, did not like this man. Or, or maybe wouldn't. So sometimes, once compassion is showed, those barriers come down. But nevertheless, it was irrelevant. He wasn't going to say, he wasn't going to ask himself, if this man comes to, would we be friends? He says, I am in a good situation. This man is in a bad situation, and I can help, and I'm going to do it. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. The golden rule. For if ye love them which love you, what thanks have you? For sinners also love them that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thanks have you? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend them of whom ye hope to receive, what thanks have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned again. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Jesus could go on and just say, and this is the law and the prophets. Which one loved like the Father loves? Which one did the will of God is revealed in the law? And the lawyer has to say, the Samaritan. And he has to ask himself, am I on the way of eternal life? Who's willing to, 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 to turn A blind eye to the suffering of those that do know not the Lord. If I'm willing to exalt myself over the poor and needy of my own people even. If I am unmoved by the bondage of sin and my brethren, not to mention the world at large. Where is the power to live such love as the law requires. This leads us back, by the way, into the passages that I read that aren't part of our passage this morning. This is the glorious blessedness of seeing the Son who gives us the Father, of knowing Him and being reconciled of Him. This is, as he says in verse 20, that we are to rejoice, rather, because your names are written in heaven. Because of God's grace, 
Because the law is not the way of life. It shows us who the way of life is. The law brings us to Christ. The law brings life to sinners by bringing us to Jesus Christ. If you turn to Romans 7 and 7 to 13, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but for the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. In other words, I was happily keeping the external aspects of the law and thinking myself to be sinless. But then every time I came to that pesky 10th commandment, I realized that I lusted after a whole lot. I coveted greatly. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of covetousness. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be, uh, to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death to me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good, by the law. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. So the law brings life to sinners by telling them what they are. It humbles us. It humbles you. And, and it shows you your sin. It shows to you the sin that you commit. It informs us that we don't measure up. And that's a mercy, by the way. Because if you think you measure up, you're not going to be looking for the grace that you need. If you think that, you know, my good outweighs my bad, or my good is better than that guy's good, and that... You know, I'm not perfect, but Christ came to make my imperfections perfect. And he's just the gap. Then you're not receiving Jesus Christ as he's offered to you. To be your all. To depend on him. To trust in him for your righteousness. I came to save sinners. Not the righteous, says Jesus Christ. And the law tells us and reveals to us and shows us that we are sinners. But it also brings us to Christ Jesus. I could go to Galatians chapter 3 for this, but just staying in the book of Romans for the, the most part. Let's chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end, the purpose, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, uh, which is of the law that man that doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks this wise, on this wise, Say not in my heart, who shall ascend to heaven? Quoting Deuteronomy again. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him, should not be ashamed. It leads us into the one that is our righteousness. And then Christ himself becomes the life of the law. It is in Christ that we can love God with all of our heart and all of our soul, 
all of our strength and all of our mind, and we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Not that we do so perfectly, but we don't become bound to that imperfection. Have you ever been on a diet and you, you just gave in to temptation one day and you ate what you weren't supposed to eat and then you said to yourself, well, today's a cheat day because I've already broken it. I might as well eat everything else I'm not supposed to eat. We do that with sin as well. Well, I've already fallen short of the glory of God. I just, it won't matter if I do just a little more, spend a little more time doing this or, or indulge in another way. And it becomes a way of entrapping you into itself. How many people don't share the gospel because they know that they still struggle with sin? Not realizing that the gospel is their liberty from it. And that they can proclaim not that they are sinless, but that Christ is sufficient for sin. And our sinfulness and our fall short of it shouldn't get in the way because we're not hypocrites. Because we should be saying, brother, I'm a sinner too, but the Lord has saved me and delivered me from sin. The gospel does that. In Romans uh, chapter 8, just a little bit after the passage I read before, in verses 1 through 4, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but rather after the Spirit, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death, that that law that condemned. For what the law could not do, not because it was not glorious, but because it wasn't designed to do it, in that it was weak through the flesh. It, It was a way of life for Adam in the Garden of Eden. But it's not the way of life to sinners, it's the way of condemnation. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might yet be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That He has given Himself for the good of sinners. You know, allegorically speaking, it's common to take the parable of the Good Samaritan, which makes perfect sense in revealing and correcting our understanding of the law, and that's why Jesus gave it. But we also see that God Himself, because the law is the will of God, God Himself fulfills this because who is the good Samaritan of mankind but God who comes in the flesh gives Himself for what man could not give. Mankind had ruined itself and it could not stand by the law of God. So God became a man so that mankind could in Christ Jesus. And by His Spirit, then, we are freed to love God fully and to love our neighbor fully. Because Christ loved His neighbor fully. God loved us fully in Christ. What must we do to inherit eternal life? We must be found in Christ, who fulfills the law of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask, we confess before you that we fall far short of your law. We not only loved, not loved you with all of our heart and soul and mind and body, you don't require of us 110%, you just require your all because our all comes from you. But we don't even love our neighbor. We don't even love our brother in Christ. 
We don't even love the family member in our own home as we love ourselves. We fall far short of eternal life and bring upon us death. But we give you all thanks and glory that you have given us Christ Jesus, who came and bore the sin and the condemnation of the law on our behalf, that we might be free to do the righteousness of the law through your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would give us the fullness of your Spirit, that we might indeed give ourselves to love to you and to one another, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.